If you have a Bible, please turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 8. Uh, we have a very busy morning this, uh, today with uh, baptisms at the end of the service, and then we have a, uh, a powerful missions update, and so that's coming, on, coming up later on uh, as well. So all that's going to make for a slightly uh, shorter sermon, um, something I should probably never say in a room full of engineers who have already started tracking the trajectory and the critical path of my message. Uh, but we're going to try to keep it uh, under 33, under 34 minutes today. This is the first week in our new Advent series called Love Came Down. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that I personally, for whatever reason, have this low need for closure. And what I mean by that is I can watch uh, 90% of a movie or read 90% of a book, and I don't ever have to go back and finish it if I'm abruptly uh, interrupted. And, um, and some of you gave me a hard time about that, and some of you sort of playfully tried to diagnose my psych- psychological issues. Um, uh, but that's kind of the reality with me. But even though I have a low need for closure, I have a very high need for context. And, and what I mean by that is I, I, I have a need to see all the small details in light of the big picture. So whatever it is, if it's a project, um, if it's a crisis, if it's a new concept, I I can't start at the nitty-gritty. I have to zoom out and look at the big picture in order for me to make any sense of it at all. When someone tries to teach me a, a new board game or a card game like my family did over Thanksgiving, it can't start with you deal this many cards to this person, you go in this order. I have to kind of say, okay, what's the goal? What's the point of the whole game? And of course, how does a person win? So, you know, how does this whole thing work, which kind of makes me a bit of an annoying person to play games with, but I have to see how it all fits together. Now, of course, this is not unique to me. This is not a special quality that I have. This, this need to see how it all fits together, whatever it is, is in fact something common to being human, actually. We are wired in such a way that we need to know how the little parts fit within the overarching scheme or the big picture. In his systematic theology, 19th century German theologian uh, Louis Burkhoff says that our minds were created in such a way that we can only grasp details if we see how those details fit in the larger scheme which actually science confirms. The latest in uh, neurological research says that our brains recognize patterns and can distance themselves from the details in order to see the bigger picture. It's pretty fascinating. It's why uh, when two people start dating or even when they just start liking each other, they immediately go down the road of where will this end up? How will this ultimately end? And so they will have Pretty soon, uh, early in the relationship, that, that DTR moment, that define the relationship moment, because they want to know, how is this going to work out in the long run? We are created with a need to see how things fit together. Now, what does that have to do with Christmas? What does it have to do with Advent? Well, our approach to Advent at Capshaw is to look at the Christmas event, the birth of Jesus, from a big picture standpoint. What does Jesus' birth have to do with the rest of world history? What does Jesus' birth have to do with the rest of the Bible? And how does the big story give us, ourselves, meaning and purpose and mission in 
our own lives. It would be easy to think, uh, as I've mentioned before, that the first two-thirds of the Bible has nothing to do with Christmas, and then you get to, to Matthew, you get to the New Testament, you start reading Matthew's account, and that's kind of when the whole thing about Christmas begins. But that's actually not true. This thread, Christmas, the Christmas event is a thread of promise that runs throughout the Scriptures, beginning all the way at the first pages of the Bible. So we're going to look at the birth narrative over the next uh, you know, few weeks in this Advent series, but we're going to look at it again in the context of the big picture of the whole story. So here's how the series will unfold. Uh, this morning, we're looking at creation and chaos from Romans chapter 8, which we'll get to in just a moment. Um, next week, the promise of a coming one from Isaiah 7. Uh, on the 19th, we'll actually look at the birth of Jesus, so we'll be in the birth narrative. And then on the 26th, the visitation. So what happens after Jesus is born and what can we learn from that? But this morning, uh, creation and chaos as we try to establish a framework for this incredible incarnation, the birth of Jesus. Look with me at Romans chapter 8. We're going to cover uh, verses 18 through 25. Let me get, begin, though, just by reading uh, verse 18. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So I want to pause there because you know, we're, we're sort of parachuting into the middle of this chapter. Romans 8 is this monumental chapter in the Bible. Some people would uh, call it and, and regard it as the greatest chapter in the whole Bible, and, and for good reason. We have this, this incredible, really unmatched expression of the Trinitarian love that God has for His own people. So it's, a, it's just a beautiful chapter, and of course we have the most direct description of God's providential dealings with humanity in Romans chapter 8, and we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. I uh, went to a restaurant recently for lunch, and my server, who I guess was probably 20-ish years old, I noticed on her wrist she had tattooed 8 colon 28, which I'm assuming has to be a reference to. Uh, God's sovereign grace, God's care for His own people and creation. So all of chapter 8 is so rich. And then hidden in kind of the middle of it, where we are this morning, is this section that captures the tension of of living the Christian life. We we live as, as those who have a foot in two worlds, you might say. We live in the already and the not yet. We live as those who look around and we see that the, the God's kingdom has crashed into the world. We see that God is bringing people to saving faith and He's reconciling relationships and He's restoring entire families and communities. But we also look around and we see pain and hurt and frustration and unreconciled relationships. And we see, so we're living in these, these two worlds. We see the evidence of God's kingdom all around us, and yet we also see the evidence of brokenness, living in a world that's not yet restored. And in verse 18 that I just read, Paul acknowledges the pain and suffering of living in this broken world. But then he says, all that suffering, and keep in mind, this was somebody, we just finished up a series, a six-month-long series of the book of Acts. This is someone who knows what it's like to suffer. This is not theoretical stuff. Paul understands suffering at an experiential level, and he says all that suffering doesn't even compare to the glory in store for believers. 
Now, how could Paul say that, especially a guy who'd been through so much? And furthermore, how can we have such a mindset as we look out and we see the brokenness of our world? Well, Paul knew something of the glory that was in store for the believer. Here's our first point this morning as we begin. We set the broader stage for the birth of Jesus. As bad as things may be now, our worst trials are nothing when compared to the glory in store for those in Christ. Now, if I left off the last phrase in that point, and I just said that our worst trials are nothing, that would be bad theology, it would be discouraging, and frankly, it would be pastoral malpractice. Suffering is real. Many of you are in the middle right now of some very painful suffering. And so we don't do anybody any favors when we minimize our own suffering or we diminish the suffering of other people. Paul's not doing that, and, and I'm not doing that by, by my first point either. The, the last part of it is critical. Our worst trials are nothing when compared to the glory that is in store for those in Christ. It's easy for us, I think, as Christians to, and I think we do it unwittingly, we don't do it intentionally, but we diminish the suffering that other people are going through. Unfortunately, our, our words of sympathy often we begin with something like, well, it could be worse, you could be blank, right? Or we say, well, you really should be doing whatever. You should be looking at the bright side, look at the positive. And I'm embarrassed to say that I've begun plenty of words of, quote, comfort with those assurances. It's easy to see how those statements can actually increase the distance between us and those who are hurting. A woman's husband leaves her uh, for another woman, making a mockery of the covenant they established with him before God, and we say to her, well, at least you still have your kids. But that's not really very helpful for a woman in the middle of such heartbreak. A man gets unfairly terminated from his job with no severance, and he sees his rep reputation go down the toilet, and we say to him, well, at least you still have your health. It's well-meaning, sure, but, but I'm not sure how helpful it is. I actually heard an older lady say this not long ago. This is a true story about a man who had undergone some horrific tragedy in his life, relationally, vocationally, physically, and she said, well, at least he still has his hair. Seriously. This is what she said. And I thought, that's the silver lining that you see? Now, what am I supposed to think? But that's what she said to him. After all this stuff, she said, well, at least he still has his hair. You know, we, we, we throw in these statements, you know, at least, or you should, or whatever. And, and, and when we do so, we're minimizing someone else's suffering. That's not what Paul's doing here. He's not minimizing suffering. He's magnifying the glory in store for the believer. As we sang together at the start of this service, glory awaits for all God's redeemed. Now you say, well, wait a second, but doesn't verse 18 say that none of this suffering is to be compared to the glory revealed to us? It does, but that Greek preposition too could be translated a variety of ways. And I love what one world-class scholar, Thomas Schreiner, says. He says the idea is that the glory apprehends us and is bestowed Upon us. So for the Christian, there is a future glory that will apprehend us and be bestowed upon us that will completely suppress anything that we have ever experienced in this life. 
We're talking about a shalom. We're talking about a total peace, a complete wellness that, again, will surpass anything we have ever experienced to date. Now think for a second about the happiest moments in your life. What comes to mind? The day you graduated from high school, maybe, and that, just the sense of freedom, and maybe the day you graduated from college and, and the sense of accomplishment, maybe the day you got married, the moment you were handed the keys to your first car and you just felt like the whole world was yours, the day you welcomed your first child into the world, into your home, the day you moved your last child out of your home? What do you think about? What's, what's the happiest? I heard two, uh, two dads at a basketball game recently saying that uh, to one another, the day my son moves out of my house, my wife and I, we're going to party like it's 1999. They were so excited, and, and, uh, and I just looked at them with a very judgmental, this is years ago, with a judgmental uh, spirit until my kids became teenagers, and then it all sort of made sense to me. Um, but what do you, when you think about the happiest day of your life, the happiest moments of your life, what is it that comes to mind for you? Well, the glory that is in store for you if you are in Christ is so much greater than that moment you're thinking of. Infinitely greater. It is a perfect happiness that will never end. Your greatest joy, bottled up and preserved for all eternity. Eternal bliss, the likes of which we can't even fathom in the presence of God and His Son, where sin can no longer torment you and sickness and death no longer threaten you, where there will be no jealousy, no envy, no self-doubt, where you will live forever on a new earth with a perfect, resurrected, glorified body, where you will never look at your body in the mirror and think, ugh, where you'll never have another fight with your kids or your coworker or somebody at church, where your only experience will always forever be total and complete joy. We think we have an idea what that's like, but as C.S. Lewis famously uh, said, he compared our unawareness to the reality in store for us to a child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. If you are in Christ, you have something incredible, dare I say majestic, impossibly glorious, humanly speaking, in store for you. And as we sang together, it won't be long. It won't be long. And I think we need that encouragement because when we look around, we see the world is not so great right now. Look at verses 19 through 22. Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I mentioned the need for us to see the birth narrative in light of the big picture Well, if we don't understand the early chapters of Genesis, which Romans 8 points back to, we're never really going to understand why Jesus came or what was so monumental about it. 
Genesis 3 tells us that when God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, He gave them everything. Everything for them to enjoy. Everything good. The only stipulation was this, Genesis 2, when the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So everything was theirs. Everything was theirs to enjoy and to fill out and to take in but the fruit from one tree. And Satan went to work creating doubt in God's goodness. That's where rebellion always begins, by the way. When we doubt the goodness of God and the goodness of His provisions. When we believe what He has given us in marriage, in relationships, in our life, whatever it is, it's not good enough. We have to go outside of His design. Now, it's fascinating to me that Satan's first trick was to introduce what? Legalism into humanity. He questions Eve. Come on, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Of course, that's not what God said. God said you can eat of any tree except one. But the devil is working on Eve. And Eve replies, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And we read that and we say, wait a second. Neither shall you touch it? There's no indication God said anything about touching the tree. But right away, quote, higher standards are introduced that would lead to frustration and despair. Higher standards beyond, beyond the revelation of God. And sure enough, Eve succumbs to the serpent's cunning and takes the fruit of the forbidden tree and eats it. And she gives some to Adam and he eats it as well. And at that moment, everything changed forever. Nothing would be unaffected. Every created thing would be stained and tainted and the curse of sin would rest on the world. This is what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says in verse 20 that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's a reference to Adam and Adam's rebellion. The one who rejected God's provision in favor of his own wisdom and then subjected creation to corruption. And now, verse 22, all of creation is groaning as we deal with the global consequences of living on a sin-cursed planet with sin-cursed people like ourselves. Here's our second point. The sin of our first parents, which is just a reference to Adam and Eve, brought about a spiritual, relational, and moral corruption that is infected and affected every one of us, each one of us. Now, who would argue that the world is messed up? No one that I know would argue that. It may be somewhat masked this time of year. You know, we have the lights and the trees and the decorations and the gifts and the parties and the gatherings and, and people coming home from, from college. And I love all of those things. All of those things are so good. And I can't wait. I'm, I'm literally counting down the days to see my middle two kids coming home from, from college. So those are all good things. But even with all that going on, we know that things aren't right. We sing the song, it's the most wonderful time of the year, but as we point out every Christmas, it's not so wonderful for everyone, is it? For some, the holidays are the darkest time of the year. For some, and maybe this describes you, some have just recently lost a loved one in the past 10 months, 11 months. 
and the holidays are the time, the, maybe the, the, the most devastating time to be alone without that person and the emotions are still real and raw and they nag at you. Or maybe your life is about to change in drastic ways and, and, and it brings upon you a sense of dread and anxiety and uncertainty. For some, the holidays only bear witness to the fact that their relationships are not right. Maybe a marriage, maybe relationships with adult kids or friends. Christmas may be a wonderful time of the year, but the reality is we're all dealing with stuff. It's not just some people who experience pain and disappointment. In the last week alone, the last seven days, I lost an uncle to COVID and a cousin to a tragic car accident. My cousin was 54 years old. Just because there are lights all around us and we see the beauty of the decorations, it doesn't mean that our world is suddenly magically perfect. We know better. This is what Paul means when he says the whole world, verse 22, is groaning together. Creation has been corrupted. Along with all the problems with the earth, decay and entropy and depleted resources, all these things, we have problems on the earth like violence and abuse, kidnapping and murder, hatred, sex trafficking, the mistreatment of women, racial injustice, the oppression of the poor, bitter battles between friends. The whole earth groans, not just because of the physical decay we see, but also the moral decay. And it's not just the big bad world out there either. It's the sin in our own hearts that plagues us, that really disgusts us the most. As we get impatient with our kids and we fall short of our promises and we see worry and anxiety overtake us, as our hearts turn toward other things in affection and devotion, things other than the God who made us, we feel the sting of guilt and shame and sometimes it seems unrelenting. And for the Christian, there's actually another type of groaning, verse 23. Paul says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there's a, there's a special type of groaning, we might say, for those who are believers, for those who have the Spirit. And that is we groan because we are apart from the physical presence of the Lord and we long to be with Him. We who have turned from our sins and trusted in Jesus, we're already sons and daughters, right? The rest of Romans 8 makes, makes that clear. But we are, in a sense, apart from our Father. That is, we're not with Him. We're not in His presence, physical presence now. The adoption of sons that Paul talks about here is the redemption of our bodies. These new bodies that we're going to get that are perfect and without sin, glorified bodies that we enjoy in the presence of our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus forever. The great Philadelphia preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse writes, just as a newborn baby cries, so the newborn child of God groans because of his separation from the Lord and because he is not yet in the state for which he, was, he has been created. So we groan when we see all the things going on in our world. And just last night, it was probably 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, Janine pointed out a picture on Facebook of friends of ours and we looked at what was going on in, in their lives and we were just deeply grieved. 
I could hardly sleep at least right away because of it. We see, we groan because we see what's going on in the world. We groan because we know of our own failures. We're acutely aware of our own shortcomings and all the ways that we fall sin of God's perfect standard of holiness. And we groan because we're not with our Lord. We're not with our Lord. But for the Christian, as Paul will point out, this is not a hopeless groaning. Look at verses 24 through 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what is this hope? Well, it is the confident expectation that we will one day be with our Heavenly Father because of the work that Christ has done on our behalf. One day we will receive those resurrected bodies. One day we will enjoy the glory that we've been talking about this morning. But notice that Paul says in verse 24, in this hope we were saved, past tense. If you've trusted in Jesus, your sinful past has been erased. Past tense. It's in the past. Your worst offenses against God and other people have been cast as far away as the east is from the west. An infinite and indefinite amount. You have been once for all reconciled to God and forever declared not guilty of all your sins. And right now you are loved by God and you are right now at this moment, if you are in Christ, a child of God whom God thinks the world of. But how can this be? We've read about the groaning and, and, and all the ways the world is messed up. How can this be? What does this, any, any of this have to do with Christmas? Well, it's not part of this section, but a little bit earlier in the same chapter, Paul writes this in verse 3 of chapter 8. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now to say, Paul says that, he sent, God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. To say God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, verse uh, 3 there, doesn't mean that Jesus sinned, but that He was spared no shortcuts in humanity. So, He suffered tremendously physically. Of course, we know that. You read the passion narratives. He suffered emotionally, relationally, betrayed and abandoned by His own best friends. He suffered spiritually. He suffered in every way common to man, yet was without sin. He became a helpless baby so that he could be our substitute in life and death. So what does all this have to do with the birth narrative? Here's our third point this morning. One day the glory we await will be fully realized because the manger-born child grew up to become the crucified and risen Savior. Started this message talking about the importance of seeing this whole thing in light of the big picture. Well, the reason we even have Christmas, the reason for the advent, the arrival, the coming of Jesus, is because creation was subjected to corruption when Adam disobeyed God. And as a result, not only do we have weeds and do we have decay and do we have all the bad things happening on the physical planet, but it also means that every person born after Adam 
Every person born and all humanity is born separated from God, apart from God, estranged from God, and we can even say enemies of God. That's what Paul says. Every person born is born at odds with God. Now, later in the same book, the book of Romans, Paul refers to Jesus as the last Adam. What this means is, just like Adam, who represented humanity as the head, Jesus is also a covenant head. When Adam sinned, his sin meant that every single person born would be born condemned. All of humanity, without exception. But unlike Adam, Jesus loved and obeyed God fully. Jesus' representative obedience overcomes the disobedience of Adam and thereby provides salvation for all of those who are united to Christ by faith. See, Jesus didn't come to the earth just to give us a good example. He didn't come just to be a really good teacher, although He certainly was that. Jesus was born to live and to die, to suffer the wrath of God for our rebellion. That was His purpose in coming. And if we don't understand that, the corruption of the world, the need that the world had for a Savior, then just looking at Jesus in the manger is not really going to fully cut it. We're not going to make sense of it. Jesus was the suffering servant who endured all the pain of living in a sin-cursed world, though He Himself was without sin. But He didn't just suffer and die. He was raised again as the conquering king, providing irrefutable evidence that he truly accomplished our salvation. Our future resurrection promised in this passage is ours only because Christ was resurrected. I think I may have shared this with you before, but 10, 11 years ago after a a Good Friday service, at the very end of it, and we spent the whole time focusing on the, the death of Jesus, but at the very end, I mentioned something about the hope that we have as believers, the hope in the resurrection. And I hadn't gotten done with that statement only a minute or two, and somebody came, stormed up to the front, and said, at the Good Friday service, you're not supposed to mention the resurrection. You know, I I had some smart aleck comments that I wanted to say, but I didn't say. The Holy Spirit was helpful in that. But I did say to him, according to whom? According to whom are you not supposed to mention the resurrection? He said, well, you're just supposed to focus on the death of Jesus. I said, well, here's the thing. We know the whole story. So why wouldn't we look at the death of Jesus in light of the big story? And the same is true of the birth of Jesus. Why wouldn't we look at the birth of Jesus in light of the big story? Because if it's it's regarded or considered apart from the big story, it doesn't make total sense. But when we look at it in light of this grand story of redemption, this meta-narrative what we say, we see that God in His mercy and His kindness saw fit out of His good pleasure to send to a broken, sin-cursed, hopeless and helpless world His only Son who would live a perfect life, satisfying all the requirements of the law, but would die a brutal and cruel death, absorbing, taking on the wrath of God which we deserved. The birth of must, must be considered in light of the death and the resurrection and the impending return of Jesus the Christ. If you're trusted in Jesus this morning, if you're trusted in Him, you have a glory in store for you that is beyond your wildest dreams. And it won't be long. 
until you receive that glory, at least in the grand scheme of things. Let that encourage your heart today in times of anxiety, in times of fear, in times of loneliness, in times of uncertainty. And you should know the benefits of your salvation are not only future. Even now, right now, Jesus is praying for you. He is interceding for you. Right now, the Holy Spirit is guiding you and preserving you and keeping you close to the Father. Right now, the Father loves you and is pleased with you in Christ and is working things out according to a plan that is for your good and His glory. And this is not because you've done anything to deserve it. It's not because I've done anything to deserve such grace. It's because the manger-born child grew up in perfect obedience to become the conquering king who died on the cross to bear the guilt and shame of our sin against a holy God. If you're here this morning and you've not trusted in Jesus, and maybe you've called yourself a Christian for years, decades even, but you've never really come to the end of your own rope, you've never really come to the place where you despise and despair of your own sin, You've never really put your faith and trust in Jesus. I have to be so honest with you today as to say this morning, if that describes you, you stand right now condemned by God. Under the wrath of a holy God. It doesn't matter how good you think you've been. It doesn't matter if you're better than your neighbor. You may very well be. It doesn't matter. You haven't been good enough because what God demands is perfection. But that same suffering servant and conquering king welcomes you this morning to repent and to receive him. And all those who call out to him, the scriptures make it abundantly clear. Jesus will hear, he will come near to, he will forgive, and he will make new. I pray that that's the case for you this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven. I want to pray this morning for the person who is here who's apart from Christ, the person who's never repented and believed on the person and work of Jesus. God, will you do the miraculous work that no amount of words that I can say, no amount of persuasion can bring about. Will you do the miraculous work of bringing that person to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? And for the person who's here this morning who's just discouraged, deeply saddened, maybe what's going on in his or her own family or going on in the world or some combination thereof, for the person who just feels beaten down, who has this pit in his or her stomach because of an unresolved conflict, Father, will you work in such a way to remind that person of the position they have before you in Christ? And as a result of that, will you stir with him a joy and a courage and a resolve to worship and obey you and to pursue conflict where it's needed? Will you work in such a way to bring harmony and unity and joy to your people? And we'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.